Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. In 1950s Las Vegas, the most powerful newspaper owner in the city went on trial for publishing an editorial. Federal prosecutors alleged that editorial was intended to incite the assassination of an extremely controversial U.S. senator. The resulting court case was a national sensation. It involved intrigue at the highest levels of the U.S. government and the effort to defeat the destructive political involvement in the ruthless pursuit of the Red Menace. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemInTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Post-war Las Vegas was a place where someone could start fresh and make a name for themselves. One of those people was Herman Hank Greenspun. Greenspun arrived in the small desert town in 1946 after spending a period of time working as an attorney in New York City. Greenspun left the legal profession saying it didn't suit him because it would entail a life, quote, fighting for causes I couldn't support without making moral and emotional reservations. After serving during World War II, he found work in Las Vegas as a press agent for the Flamingo Hotel and Casino, the first modern era resort to set up shop on the Vegas Strip. Greenspun worked closely with the brains behind the Flamingo, mobster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Greenspun would later say he had no idea about Siegel's shady and violent past. Besides, the job with the Flamingo didn't last long before Greenspun established a newspaper, the Las Vegas Sun. The Sun would serve as the direct competitor to the city's long-standing local paper, the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Hank Greenspun didn't confine his pursuits to journalistic endeavors, though. He took great pride in his Jewish roots and was an enthusiastic supporter of the newfound nation of Israel. Israel was facing attack from every one of its Arab neighbors shortly after declaring independence in accordance with a UN resolution. However, the young country lacked any significant military resources, and Greenspun worked tirelessly to acquire heavy arms and send them to Israel to assist in building up the country's military. This led to Greenspun pleading guilty to federal charges of violating the Neutrality Act for his role in arming the Israeli Defense Forces. He paid a $10,000 fine but served no jail time, and he was later granted a full pardon for the crime by U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Around the same time that Hank Greenspun was using his role as publisher of the Las Vegas Sun to establish a base of power in the growing city of Las Vegas, a junior U.S. senator from Wisconsin had figured out a way to make a name for himself in national politics. In 1950, Senator Joe McCarthy publicly claimed to have in his possession a secret list of known communist infiltrators at the State Department. 
At the time, the nation was caught in the midst of a red scare, as largely unfounded concerns about communist infiltration of American government and institutions ran rampant. This allowed unscrupulous politicians, such as McCarthy, to thrive. By 1953, McCarthy had parlayed what many had termed witch hunts into his becoming head of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, where he ruined the reputations of countless innocent people with false accusations of being communist sympathizers. It was during this time that works of art such as Arthur Miller's The Crucible used motifs like the Salem witch trials to highlight the destructive nature of McCarthy's tactics. So-called McCarthyism destroyed innumerable lives, with many of the targets of his unfounded investigations being blacklisted from their professions and other victims even resorting to suicide. It was election season in 1952 when McCarthy and Greenspun would experience their first substantial clash. McCarthy came to Las Vegas while on a swing of western states, where he was stumping for candidates he considered fellow soldiers in his war on communist sympathizers. On October 13, 1952, the red-baiting senator from Wisconsin delivered a radio broadcast speech from the stage in the auditorium of the War Memorial Building before a crowd of 1,000 local Republicans. Among those in attendance were Hank Greenspun and his wife Barbara. Both were registered Republicans and strong supporters of former U.S. Army General and presidential candidate Dwight D. Eisenhower. As McCarthy was advocating for the re-election of Nevada Senator George Malone, he charged Greenspun with being an ex-communist and referred to the Las Vegas Sun as being the equivalent of the well-known communist publication, The Daily Worker. Greenspun and his wife stood up from their seats in the middle of McCarthy's speech and demanded an opportunity to respond to the senator's allegations. McCarthy replied by saying that he intended to finish his speech and then continued with his inflammatory rhetoric. Rather than sitting down, Greenspun yelled over McCarthy from the crowd, you're the most vicious type of demagogue, and that the charge of Greenspun being an ex-communist was the greatest lie ever told by McCarthy. A contemporary article in the Las Vegas Review-Journal said the mood in the auditorium had reached near-riot proportions. As McCarthy attempted to finish his speech, Greenspun not only refused to take his seat, but he walked up to the stage where the senator was standing and waded off to the side until he had a chance to respond. A furious Joe McCarthy told Greenspun, I'm not here to debate you. With that, Greenspun stormed toward the man he'd routinely pilloried in his newspaper. The senator and the publisher exchanged heated words, with their exchange escalating to the point where one of McCarthy's aides had to intervene to separate the two men. McCarthy wound up his remarks, received a gift of a 10-gallon hat from a local GOP booster, and made his way towards the auditorium's exit. Greenspun then took to the microphone and harangued McCarthy, demanding that the senator stay to listen to his response. McCarthy ignored Greenspun and continued heading out the door, with half the audience rising to leave along with the senator. As McCarthy exited the building, Greenspun began a 27-minute-long tirade against the abusive policies and tactics of McCarthy before a statewide radio audience. that McCarthy had spent World War II behind a desk, and that the senator had tried to obtain a Purple Heart after breaking his leg during a beach party. 
the publisher even charged that McCarthy had urged leniency for German soldiers who were standing trial for massacring several dozen captured American airmen during the war. The senator left the hall before Greenspun had concluded his response. And not being a man to fear the powers that be, Greenspun used a portion of his time to lambaste Nevada's powerful senior senator, Pat McCarran, who was also a hardline anti-communist that harbored many bigoted sentiments. In fact, earlier that year, Greenspun had publicly joked that McCarran's recovery from a heart attack had been one of the biggest disappointments he'd experienced during his time in Nevada journalism. Just for good measure, Greenspun went to the county courthouse the following day and swore an affidavit before a district judge that he was not an admitted ex-communist, and he offered a $1,000 reward to anyone who could prove that he'd lied on the affidavit. Greenspun was elated when his preferred candidate, Dwight D. Eisenhower, won the presidency in November of 1952. But he was outraged by McCarthy's continued scorched-earth war against communists in American life, as well as Pat McCarran's support for McCarthy's crusade. The outspoken publisher wrote a regular front-page editorial for the Las Vegas Sun entitled Where I Stand, in which he'd share his opinions. But it was the January 9, 1954 edition of the article that would result in Greenspun being indicted on federal charges. That day, copies of the paper were delivered with an editorial crafted by Greenspun on his Underwood typewriter that read in part, Senator Joe McCarthy has come to a violent end. Huey Long's death will be serene and peaceful compared to the demise of the sadistic bum from Wisconsin. But I'd hate to see some simpleton get the chair for such a public service as getting rid of McCarthy. The chances are that McCarthy eventually will be laid to rest at the hands of some poor innocent slob whose reputation and life he's destroyed through his well-established smear technique. The poor victim will feel he has little left to live for, so he'll get a gun and blast Joe to Hades. It'll be a messy job, but Joe is used to messiness. He's created enough of it. It would be more befitting the dignities of Joe's position in society if he leaped from a 29-story building. But Greenspun also veered into bigotry in his efforts to tarnish McCarthy. His editorial charged the senator with being the disreputable pervert from Wisconsin and an immoral scoundrel. These were veiled references to an alleged same-sex relationship that McCarthy shared with his top aide, Roy Cohn. Cohen and McCarthy engaged in despicable tactics, and their regular abuses of the power afforded to a U.S. senator were the proper area to attack, rather than their sexual orientation. Regardless of what resorting to such attacks indicates about Greenspun's character, the fact remained that in 1950s America, attacking the homosexual proclivities of a politician was an effective way to take down an opponent, and Greenspun made such charges an integral part of his assault on McCarthy. McCarthy got wind of the article and wanted revenge against one of the only publishers in America daring enough to take on the senator at the height of his power. McCarthy reached out to his friend, Postmaster General Arthur Summerfield, and demanded that Greenspun be stripped of his second-class mailing privileges. The Department of Justice soon learned of McCarthy's complaints to the Postmaster General, and on April 8, 1954, a federal grand jury in Las Vegas returned an indictment against the publisher of the Las Vegas Sun for mailing copies of his newspaper containing an article which tended to incite arson, murder, or assassination. 
Greenspun faced up to five years in prison and a $5,000 fine if he was convicted. Greenspun was in Los Angeles when he learned of the indictment. He had a reputation for never backing down, and the publisher remained true to form even in the face of federal charges. He responded to the charges by saying, As always, I'm ready to stand behind anything printed in the sun. I wouldn't want to see McCarthy made a martyr. He's bound to destroy himself politically sooner or later. He continued saying, We were just performing our duty to our readers to keep them fully informed of the dangers that threaten their government and their way of life. Greenspun retained famed attorney Edward Pierpont Morgan for his defense, and in a sign of Greenspun's influence and notoriety in Las Vegas, which at the time was a town of less than 75,000 people, the presiding federal judge, Roger Foley, had to recuse himself from the case to avoid the appearance of bias after Greenspun retained both of the judge's sons as attorneys for his defense team. Unfortunately for Greenspun, the federal judge selected to replace Foley had been nominated on the recommendation of one of Joe McCarthy's close friends in the Senate, which might explain why efforts by Greenspun to have the charges dismissed before the case went to trial proved unsuccessful. While Greenspun initially engaged in a steadfast defense of his article, his attorneys later attempted to argue Greenspun may not have written the entirety of the inflammatory article in question. But the prosecution countered by introducing evidence that Greenspun published editorials after his indictment where he voiced his support for the article that resulted in him facing charges. The defense suffered a setback when the presiding judge ruled that the jury didn't need to find that Greenspun intended for his article to lead to McCarthy's assassination, but only that the article was capable of inciting murder. Greenspun's lawyers later developed a theory that the U.S. federal government was engaged in a conspiracy to harass the small-town newsman. His defense counsel unsuccessfully argued that Senator McCarthy, Senator McCarran, and Postmaster General Summerfield had framed Greenspun. In trademark fashion, Greenspun commented, quote, McCarran had investigated me so many times, his senile brain had turned to jelly. Despite the judge's ruling, there was truth to allegations of a conspiracy, just not the sort that Greenspun had alleged. Rumors at the time suggested Senator McCarthy didn't want things escalated to a prosecution of Greenspun, but that officials in the Eisenhower administration, which was hostile to McCarthy and his tactics, pushed the prosecution as a way to embarrass McCarthy. The theory goes something like this. Attorney General Herbert Brownell Jr. had heard about McCarthy's complaint to the Postmaster General. Brownell was also aware that Greenspun, who was a vocal supporter of President Eisenhower, had been making allegations in the Las Vegas Sun that McCarthy was involved in sexual perversion. Normally, those types of accusations in the 1950s would have been met with a libel lawsuit, but McCarthy had not brought Greenspun to court over those accusations, the likely reason being that the senator knew the legal discovery process would have opened up his private life to examination. Despite McCarthy's lack of litigation against Greenspun, other major newspapers and publications refrained from printing the sexual perversion accusations against the senator, preferring to avoid the wrath of the powerful politician. But Brownell knew anything published in an official court record was privileged, meaning that newspapers could reprint what was found in court documents without fear of being sued for libel. When Brownell's prosecutors indicted Greenspun, they included the entirety of the January 8th editorial, including the part that accused McCarthy of being a disreputable pervert, even though including that portion was unnecessary to support the underlying incitement charges. 
And the theory behind Brownell making the sexual perversion allegations privileged could be supported by the fact that the Department of Justice chose to not indict Greenspun on charges of criminal libel, which prosecutors could have done if they believed the disreputable pervert comment to be untrue. As Brownell expected, once Greenspun's inflammatory column was made a part of the official court record, publications ranging from Time Magazine to the Los Angeles Times repeated the accusations of sexual perversion against McCarthy. It's impossible to know if this conspiracy is true, but accounts of Greenspun's arraignment indicated it was a relaxed affair and that neither the U.S. attorney nor the U.S. marshal nor the judge seemed much interested. Greenspun was released without bail. After extensive pretrial procedure, Greenspun's case finally proceeded to a trial before a jury of Las Vegas on April 12, 1955, over a year after his inflammatory editorial had been published. Greenspun's lawyers even made a last-ditch effort to discredit the prosecution by alleging the U.S. attorney overseeing the case had asked the FBI to investigate prospective jurors to gain an advantage over the defense. The same federal judge that refused multiple motions to dismiss the charges against Greenspun found no merit to the allegations of improper use of FBI resources during jury selection. The entire defense against the charges was premised on the First Amendment. Greenspun's January 8th editorial, while provocative and incendiary, was in regard to an elected official. This was exactly the type of speech that was intended to be given the highest level of protection under the Constitution. But the presiding judge did comment that freedom of the press did not mean unbridled license. After almost three hours of deliberations, the jury sided with Greenspun and acquitted him of all charges. As Greenspun left from the courthouse a free man, his attorney, Edward Pierpont Morgan, who is a dedicated civil rights advocate, handed him an unpaid bill for $11,000 that read, paid in full. Hank Greenspun contributed to Nevada's political and cultural life for more than three decades after his acquittal. He made an unsuccessful run for governor and went on to become one of the largest real estate developers and media moguls in Southern Nevada. Joe McCarthy, on the other hand, was officially censured by his colleagues in the Senate for his cruel tactics while overseeing his Senate committee. McCarthy became a pariah within the Senate, and his addictions to alcohol and morphine led to his death on May 2, 1957, at the age of 48. When some speculated that Greenspun's nonstop attacks in his paper had hounded McCarthy to death, Greenspun said he hoped that was the case. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit MayhemInTheDesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.